The straining of knots, the clatter of a ship's bell, and the flutter of footsteps bounding their way towards the boats. The sounds here started 3,000 years ago. They were made by fishermen, merchants, and everyday people who loved, lived, and lost by the sea. While their sonic echoes ceased long ago, traces of their lives can still be found beneath the ground, reverberating across an ancient port in what today is Oman. Today's guest takes us on a journey to that ancient port where the sands of time collide with the surf. Welcome to season three of the Get Lost Podcast. This is the first episode of season three. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a journalist and explorer. Today's guest is an archaeologist. She's an art conservator and an ancient history expert who runs hit social channels on YouTube and Instagram at Dig It With Raven. She's a student at the University College of London where she's overachieving with a second MA. Her name is Raven Todd De Silva. Raven, welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited. I am so excited to have you on, and uh, I, I just love that we have the opportunity to have a real deal archaeologist at the start of season three. Uh, I believe season two started with Josh Gates, who's like a pseudo archaeologist, sort of like me, but way more successful. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for taking time out of your busy scientific activities to talk to us. I'm happy to be here. It's it's always fun to talk to other people about things that we all, you know, mutually enjoy. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your background and your social channels, because I first found you uh, on Instagram at Dig It With Raven, and I thought, holy crap, like this person is really getting to like the nuts and bolts of archaeology in some super interesting and consumable ways. All right. Well, I yeah, my, my background is ancient history archaeology with my undergrad and my bachelor's. And I've always been interested in things that are older than me. I have a horrible case of nostalgia for places I, you know, times I haven't lived in. But right. um, yeah, then I've, I've, I've always been interested in what objects can tell us about the past and how there's all these stories and not just the, the great, fantastical, you know, big figures, but what they can tell us about like everyday people and the normal lives that you and I live and how it can be 
transferred into into the past and what, what we can understand from that and the connections we can make and okay so give us an idea of a connection because like in my mind I'm thinking what listeners could do is just dig around in an attic and maybe they pull out an old record collection from their parents or grandparents and like you can learn a lot from somebody by what records they were listening to what their music taste was but archaeology is a little bit deeper than that right a little bit, but you, you're kind of getting this, the, the vibe because that's kind of how it, I, it first started with me. I'm in my grandparents' crawl space, you know, digging around to see the remnants of lives lived in the past and that, you know, that didn't, you know, transfer from them raising children and everything into what their lives are now and how it all kind of ended up under the stairs. And you can kind of see how things trickle down and you can learn a lot about them that way. It's a little bit more complex with archaeology because what you can see with that is more deeper levels and kind of the transition between layers. So you can start seeing different connections from other places. You can start seeing conflicts. You can see the rise of city-states. You can see people, you know, changing hands under power. And you can really just see the development as well. For me, I really like the the more personal level. So you can see the creation of households and homes and children's toys and how they were used and discarded or how something amazing for me is how things used to be repaired and cared for. So you can really still see that in the archaeology of it. And you can go further and, and really get into the nitty gritty behind people. So would you say that archaeology is really a form of ancient storytelling it can be there there is some there has been some pushback against storytelling with archaeology because of the science and the the conjecture and how you know pe people kind of go a little bit too far sometimes with it okay um, give me an example of, of, of going too far would be like uh, making giant leaps and assumptions making giant leaps and assumptions or just filling in the blanks with things that we don't know and that's a lot of archaeology. Archaeology is like getting a puzzle with half of the pieces missing and then maybe just throw in some random ones that don't fit as well. And then you're trying to put them together. And depending on where you put different pieces, you could get a completely different story. So it's a little like Jurassic Park in that sense. Like you never really know what you're going to get when you start throwing in random bits of uh, <laughs> code that don't make sense. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. So. You have to be very, very careful. But that being said, storytelling within archaeology is is so important because that's how you kind of create those connections. That's how you start to care about it. I'm thinking about an artifacts as, as um, during the break between seasons, my dad passed away. Uh, he was 78 years old. He He's a former band director, like a marching band director. And oh, wow. I found a trumpet that he had. Uh, it's a, a beautiful 1950s like, silver trumpet from a company that's no longer business. And I'm just thinking about that trumpet. You know, let's say uh, it stands the test of time for a few generations and it gets lost in a house or whatever. Uh, so a thousand years from now, it's, it, you know, it's dug up from the earth. And ar as an archaeologist, what would you do with something like that? Well, for the first thing you always have to do is look at the context, right? Where, how it's been found. So 
before it even comes out of the ground, first thing you have to do is look at where it is within relationship to the ground, which is why, you know, looting and stuff is so dangerous because without the context that it's found in, it has no meaning. So depending on the archaeologist and who you are and what your research interest is, you are going to approach that object in a different way. So someone that is looking at pure material science is going to want to do some analysis on the metallurgy and what it was made out of it, how it was made. Other people are going to want to try and date it and see why it was used and its function, its form. Other people are going to look for connections to say, okay, well, why is this trumpet here in this area? And what can that tell me about the, the house, for example, that it was found in and also the greater community around it? So there's a lot of different ways that you can approach it based on what you want to find out from it. So what's interesting here is I think I'm picking up that it's more of a team activity than, say, everybody's uh, typical idea of an archaeologist, which is like Harrison Ford in a hat <laughs> uh, going to look for monkey idols and things like that. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it's no uh, no Harrison Ford, no no fedora. Like some, we, we wear... We wear some cool hats, um, but you know, you yeah, don't get the width. Yeah, hold on, no. Hat. I've seen like every archaeologist I've ever seen still has the hat. Well, like, like yes, we don't really wear the hat in the field, but it's nice no, to but have. you have you have. Also, it's a requirement. I think if you have like a Discovery Channel show, they make you wear that hat. It's either a hat or like some like type of necklace. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. A, pit, a pendant <laughs> that you got from like a temple guard on Nickelodeon. Exactly. Some sort of like magical amulet. Um, but you get the hat, the amulet, maybe a scarf, something, leather jacket. None of that you use in real archaeology. <laughs> so let's talk about real archaeology and this team sport because you were not so long ago uh, part of a team that was on a dig in a, a very interesting country, a very cool part of the world that we have only ever lightly touched upon in this podcast. And it's the country of Oman. Can you tell us about that project? What were you doing there? Uh, how did you get there? Uh, just walk us from you boarding the plane to landing and going to your destination. Ooh, all right. So the, the year was 2020, before 2020 became 2020. And um, I was... Wow. Yeah. You had a positive experience in 2020. <laughs> I did. Just before, it was like right at the cusp. It was, you know, I'm really glad. I'm very fortunate to have had this actually for the year. But um, yeah, it was, I left January 16th, very late at night. And I took a very sketchy flight from Amsterdam to Istanbul, one of the, the airports in Istanbul. If anyone ever flies Pegasus Air, be, just beware. It's not, it's not the nicest plane. It's very, very Pegasus uncomfortable. Air sounds legit. I was really excited, and then it was not fun. I don't recommend it. Like, <laughs> I think my seat wasn't attached to the actual like, chair. It was sliding around the whole time. It's just like saddles. The whole, they took the theme a little too far. Yeah, it was. It was not not uh, not not very fun. But yeah, so I, I had a layover in Istanbul, and I took a second flight to Muscat International Airport, arriving 3 a.m. on my 28th birthday, which was kind of a fun thing to do. And I was 
really prepared for, I was a little tired, but when you get into an airport, you know, after you've seen enough airports, they all kind of end up looking the same and you don't really kind of notice them. Yeah, they're like a, a blur of just people and um, Toblerone, usually. <laughs> exactly. Um, Muscat Airport is beautiful. That, for me, I was I was shocked, yes. It's, 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 it's brand new, and it's just got these... Like the escalators were lined with those, you know, garden stones mm -hmm. and foliage and these purple lights. So it was like an experience. Like it's like you land in Willy Wonka's tunnel. It was amazing. Like, you know, just the moving sidewalks. It was like, you weren't just on a moving sidewalk. You were just going through, like, it's like on a way to a spa or something. Mm -hmm. That's when I know I was like, this is swank. I didn't feel like I was going to dig in the dirt for two weeks. I just felt like I was going to go to this exotic, amazing place. And, you know, and this it, is surprising because yeah. I wouldn't associate Oman with like a modern new airport. I would almost think it's like a, a dirt landing strip, like <laughs> Apparently, not to point your fingers, but in Bulgaria. Oh, my gosh. OK. In Sofia? The mm -hmm. airport was so scary. That's the one. Yeah, the yeah. one with the smoke and all the big red letters and, and Cyrillic, and it's like living in a Rocky movie. It's great. Just that whole part of Bulgaria. That was actually, Bulgaria was the very first archaeological dig flight that I took, and that was just a horrible experience. Um, okay, so great. We should do Bulgaria in another episode, because <laughs> I think we have some good stories. We could, I did. It was Bulgaria to Macedonia, and I was like, oh, gosh. It was, I guess now it's North Macedonia. Um, but yeah. I like that we were both thinking the same sketchy airport too. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh that airport oh I'm sorry I'm now I'm scarred but let's go back to Oman it's much nicer. Um, but yeah so that's like that was shocking for me and I was told that it it is a new airport so that's it's this new fancy thing and that's all thanks to the Sultan who had actually just passed the week before I came uh, Sultan Kabus he was very well loved and he really brought Oman into the 20th and the 21st centuries and did a lot of revamp revamping and made roads. They didn't have a lot of roads for a while. So he really was able to connect the whole country. So it's starting to become a little bit more of a modern place when you sort of like when you think of Dubai, it's it's at the it's not there yet, but you can mm -hmm. see it's starting to get a little bit more swank in that kind of sense. Okay, So, so they're like on the path. Um they're on the path towards it. That's that's interesting. Yes, I don't know how far they'll go with it because uh, it's only a country of about, I think it's only about 4 million people. It's a very mm -hmm. small population because they have like, the desert. But um, it, it was a very fancy airport and I I just felt very exotic going in there. I was like, oh wow, okay, like I'm, I'm very ready for this. Like just let's do it. Um, yeah, so I was picked up by one of the dig supervisors and right away with Oman you need to get you know your sim card and everything to make sure you can get the data and whatnot and then he drove me to the ministry house so there's this house for the Omani Ministry of Heritage where all the archaeologists kind of hang out when they're not in the field or they're just in between going to the field or home so it's this like just this very nice big house with a bunch of mattresses on the floor. This sounds like a great adventure, like totally yeah. different than what I was thinking in my head. You're right, like with the dirt and all that, it's not as rustic at all 
as, as I'm thinking so far. No, not in, especially not in Muscat. That is, it is the, the capital, so it's a little bit more built up. But there, yeah, this big house in a, in, the, in a gate, and when you go in, it's a little bit different because you know it's a lot of people that just pass through, kind of like a halfway and, house. And what's the architecture like? A lot of white or creamy beige colors on the houses. That's to give it maybe a little bit more of a clean look. It's kind of just the standard throughout Oman. Mm -hmm. And the houses are quite large. And they're about yeah two, three stories. Very kind of plaster stucco on the outside. There's a balcony or two. There's always gates. They're all, they're all gated around. Not a lot of, you know, there's not lawns. They don't have mm -hmm. lawns, but they a lot of big cars they feel swanky it feels nice when it for me anything with a gate feels swanky but that's because i'm just not from an area where there usually are gates oh no that's like my dream goal is have like a courtyard where i put things you know just suit of armor <laughs> like an archery range i don't know i don't know what i would do with a courtyard but i would have things there and they would be secure that's it that's it yeah so that's how it kind of was but it doesn't feel like people are blocking you out right it doesn't feel that sense and omanis are very very friendly really great hospitality so you don't feel like people are hiding things or high, sort of you know being hostile with the right. gated and everything so you it feel was very welcome a, and and uh, yeah. taken care of and and are they feeding you when you get there yes uh well in um not at five in the morning i just went right to bed so <laughs> yeah obviously yeah, I went right to bed with like these two random people in the room with me that I, you know, I was kind of like, hi, sorry, and then I just went to sleep. Um, but when we're on site, we we didn't stay in Muscat, but when we're on site, you're fed and you're taken care of the whole time because you, you know, you're exerting yourself for hours and hours all day long. Yeah. So tell us about the site and the project as a whole. What were you there for? Yes, so I was on a site called Ras al Jins. So if we're going from Muscat, it's about a five-hour drive to the end of the country, to the like the, the northeastern tip, so just the corner part of Oman, if you're looking at it on a map. Mm -hmm. So it's right on the coast, right at the, you know, the Arabian Sea and the, the Persian Gulf, that kind of area. Not the Gulf, the other side. Um, and this site... It's absolutely stunning. So it is a Bronze Age harbor site, and it's been excavated since 1985 through a Franco-Italian team, and now um, a new sort of Franco-Italian team who has who worked with the site for years. Um, it's um, an Italian woman, Valentina, and a French man named Alex. They kind of um, are tag-teaming this site and. They're digging it to look at just the emergence of complex societies in, especially around, you know, the transition from Neolithic to the Bronze Age. This site has had continuous occupation from about the 6th millennium BCE all the way to the 3rd millennium BCE. So that's about Neolithic to, to the Bronze Age. And it seems to be that there was like a residential area as well as a more of a commercial area where they did a lot of manufacturing and a big thing that they were manufacturing are these things called uh, conus shells. So it's a beautiful shell 
quite large and they would take it and sort of grind it down into these rings. They kind of lop off parts of the shell and make these rings for jewelry, decoration, things like that. And they think that this was a, an area that was sort of almost like a trading hub because we've also found pottery and remnants from the Indus Valley civilization that's in India. This is incredible. I'm just thinking about the age of this. Um, so when you're talking about the Bronze Age, uh, tell us why that's significant in history because this site, if, if I have the math right, and I'm terrible at math, but sounds like it was occupied for 3,000 years. Yeah, it's a long time. So the there's a few main sort of, I don't want to call them revolutions, but that's what some people have termed them in the past, um, throughout the span of history, essentially. Like where, giant leaps in technology. Yeah, so when you can see like a really big shift happening. So we have, for example, the Neolithic that comes in, right? People starting to use stone tools a lot more, people starting to not be nomadic anymore and starting to settle down, start agriculture and create small communities that end up turning into towns, villages, and eventually states, and then, you know, empires and all that have the domino effect. But then after the Neolithic comes the Bronze Age. That's when metal starts getting introduced to the game. So we get, first, you know, there's a little bit of copper. Copper comes first because of the, the smelting rages. That's how we kind of define them. So okay. uh, copper comes first and we, we did we were finding little bits of copper, you know, like copper fish hooks and little metal bits of rod and things. And then the Bronze Age comes when they start adding tin and that means it needs a little bit of a higher temperature and it needs a little bit more complicated metallurgy, right? right. So that's when that's what the Bronze Age really means. But the Bronze Age is also a time when for example, just so we, everyone knows kind of where we are within the span of history, what the Bronze Age think of the Great Pyramids of Giza? That's, wow. that, that's in the Bronze Age. So that, you know, you, everyone thinks, oh, you know, it's 3,000, oh, I guess more, 5,000 years ago, it should be very primitive. But you're thinking, you know, 2,500 BC, the Great Pyramid of Giza is being built. And they already yeah. have this amazing technology. They're doing things. They have weapons. They have armor. They have uh, chariots, stuff like that, I presume. They definitely, yeah. So that's when things start to get a little bit more, you know, sophisticated with armor and weapons. And, I'm, you know, it's not that they're at this site, for example, but that's when a lot more connections especially start to get made internationally because now they have the technology and also societies are advancing in a way where you can get these more complex relationships with people that are outside of your bubble. So what I think is, is another fascinating point here is you said this was found in 1985, which for me feels like 15 years ago, but turns out <laughs> that's more like 35 years ago. I'm old, yeah. holy shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're walking the streets, quote unquote, of the site, and you know that it was found in the 80s, how much is there left to discover? There's still so much left to discover. And I think that they, they, there has been work done all around this area um, for quite a few years, and they've known some things are there. But 
Omani archaeology was never a very big thing for many years. Mm -hmm. And this sort of area started to really revolutionize that because of the things that started to get found. And there's the site. So there's different sections of the site. Um, there's, we call them RJs and things. But the one section that was dug up previously uh, in the previous project was that more residential area. And that's been sort of, we don't want to say finished because, you know, there's definitely things underneath. It's not, we didn't go all the way down to Neolithic or bedrock over there. But, you know, they found one of the oldest known incense burners in the world on that, in that area. Which that's is, sweet. I think that's and so it, cool. And it's made of bronze? It is not made of bronze. It is made of ceramic. Um, bronze, especially bronze and copper metal is not the easiest thing to survive. It does survive, but if you really want something to last, you make it out of stone or you make it out of pottery. No matter That's what That's amazing to me, because we associate um, prestige with metals, right? Mm -hmm. But what stands the test of time is the stuff that's really made out of the bones of the earth um, that are way more commonplace than the metals. Exactly. And that's what, that's the best thing about archaeology, because everyone, you know, looks for the treasure and they want the gold and the fancy, shiny things. But you don't get as much information out of the fancy, shiny, like you can, but you, you really get to the hearty meat and potatoes through these more mundane objects, the everyday objects that aren't so, as we would, some people would call special, quote, you know? And is that because they have writing on them or uh, very specific uses or, or what? doesn't have to have writing. Writing, also, you know, always helps. Um, but, you know, in the Neolithic, there was no writing. There was just ceramic and other things and houses and built, built artifacts. And you can tell based on a lot of things what the ceramic was used for, like either where it was found or if, for example, if there are burn marks on it, you can see maybe it was a cooking pot or you might be able to do some analysis to see what was inside the jar or something like that. Or, for example, at this site, we found ceramics that did not belong to this site. They were from India. Right. And you're able to so, say, oh, OK, well, they were trading with the Indus Valley, exactly. which is that's so remarkable. So walk me through uh, your accommodations at the dig and then give me like a snapshot of, of everyday life and an event that happened that sticks in your mind. OK, um, so we were staying about a 20, 30 minute drive, no, 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 maybe 20 minute drive away from the site. Uh, the site, first of all, I need to just point out that it, it's on the beach. That's so, very unfortunate. That sounds miserable. Right? Oh, it's horrible. Not only is it on a beach, it's on a turtle reserve. Wow. So it's amazing. Sometimes, so I'll get to that point, but we're staying at a, at a house just uh, in like a, a quiet area on, in a city called Ras al-Had, a little town. And there's a lot of, you know, these typical Omani house, a lot of these big rooms. And there's mul multiple beds in each room. And, you know, girls versus, girls room, boys room, all that stuff. Uh, a few other areas. And then big communal spaces where we could all hang out, play games, and do all of the archaeology, the post-excavation work. So dealing with what we actually bring out of the ground and back to the dig house. We had a little bit of a, a lab room and a big outdoor space where we did a lot of really cool 
experimental archaeology. So we made mud brick. We made, we even smelted our own copper, which was very fun. Oh man, you that's know. rad. Keep it going. Was, yeah, it's a really cool field school. So typical day is you get up around 6, 6.30, which is kind of sleeping in. I'm used to waking up around 5 to go to a dig site in Greece. So that was kind of nice. And you have breakfast, which would be usually, I kind of became obsessed with dates and tahini on a pita. That sounds fantastic. Oh my gosh, it's like the best snack. And the dates there were just fantastic. So had that with some coffee. Then around, we leave for the site at seven. So we all kind of go outside, we're all ready, bags packed, sunscreen on, and we all pack up the trucks with all the equipment that we need for the day and off we go. Usually music blaring with whoever's driving, you know, with their playlist. And it's usually something that really has good energy, good vibes to keep you excited. And you're driving down these streets, there's barely anyone else on these desert roads. And, but there's camels on the side of the street just hanging out. So, you know, you're saying, hey, there's camels on your way in. <laughs> right, asking Love for it. directions. Exactly. And then we get to the site on the turtle reserve. So you kind of feel special because you have to, you get to drive in on the beach, right to the site, right at the water. You hop out of the truck, help unpack, grab what you need for where you're digging for the day. And best part is because we're on the beach and because it's sand and very delicate layers for where we are, you get to be barefoot the whole day. This is, a dr I mean, this has to be a dream dig site, right? <laughs> this was, yeah, I was shocked when I was there. And I, not only did I learn so much and have so much fun, but it was just such a, an amazing location to just spend a January. I'm thinking about a season two episode we had with uh, Gino Caspari, and he's talking about going to Siberia and like <laughs> wading through swamps full of midge flies and biting insects. And uh, I feel like this is the exact opposite of that. We're on the, uh, the extremes of archaeology here. It's either like super, super hard or you get to hang out by the beach. So what are you looking for on the beach? Are you literally roving around with like a brush and a shovel or do you have like a hole already? Uh, and they say, all right, you know, go there and dig out things. <laughs> well, when I was, I had come in a few weeks into the dig already. So, and they knew where things were from previous excavations. So some things were already very easy to see kind of on the ground in the, the harder layers of sand that you could just kind of walk over. And then we kind of excavated this deeper area near the water and everything's laid out on in squares, right? So right. We, we know exactly like where you are at all, at all times based on the map, based on your square and we have to lay that out as well and label it while we're digging. Sort and of like a chessboard, if you, if you guys yeah. want to imagine that. A really big one. And uh, it's, so what you do, you know, we're all kind of given our areas and what we want to achieve throughout the day and what we want to record and how deep we want to go. And it, it will change as you're digging because you never know what's going to come up. And so, this one is pure troweling. I know probably Gino talked about as well, like just some of the really heavy lifting or like pickaxing and shoveling you have to do. Yeah, he was really into heavy things. Yeah, this is very light work. This was 
nice troweling into a dustbin but that's also because in the sand there we had a, a lot of small finds we're not looking for big finds we're looking for small things so we had to sieve almost every bucket of sand so that means you're just done you know every like 10 minutes essentially you're just walking to your to the sieve site with your buckets of sand you're dumping your sand into the sieve you're sitting down and you're really you're getting really good exercise with your shoulders and just sifting out looking for animal bones for shells that are of note and like big enough to keep little bits of metal stone beads a lot of fish bones all that kind of stuff and, and it's, know, it's like a, a mesh uh is it a table or like a pan that you're kind of sieving with it's like this big square i guess it's not really a pan um it's a big square thing with mesh right and right so, so you know, very fine mesh I remember growing up in, in the States, um, in any like beachside town, you could grab a, a bag of like kitty beach toys and there'd be a shovel and a little sandcastle mold and like this pan with holes in it where I guess yeah. you're supposed to sift seashells out. So sort of like a giant scientific version of that, maybe? Exactly. Yeah, a little bit more hardcore to deal with a lot of the heavier stuff. Yeah, essentially something like that where you kind of put the sand in it and you shake it and there's stuff that's left over. So when you find something in there, I mean, what is that feeling like if you find something exciting? Oh, it's so exciting. And everyone around you gets super excited. And, you know, it could be the smallest little thing, but it's super fun. So, um, you know, a lot, we, we got a lot of bones. So a lot of fish bones, a lot of dolphin bones, you get a lot of shells, you get some flints as well, like stone tools. But then every so often someone would find a stone bead and they're so tiny, like you, you can miss them so easily. And so someone finds a stone bead, everyone freaks out, is all excited. Or if you find a, like a decent piece of metal, oh wow, and you want to come and look at it. And you know, it fits, you could fit. They're all smaller than your fingernail, like even the tip of your fingernail. So you're just looking at it, but it's, it's still something that's super exciting. Right, right. So uh, while you're there, like tell us about a, a standout experience you had on site. There's so many. It's such a fun, it was such a fun experience. And there's usually so much drama that happens on archaeological sites. There was no drama here. Everyone was just really chill and in a good mood. But uh, some really good experiences. I'll, 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 there's one where, just because of the nature of the site where you are, sometimes in the morning, little sea turtles, little green turtles are hatching and you have to like run and save them from the seagulls. <laughs> right. Just super fun. So, you know, you're just trying to like keep the birds away and you see these little things just crawling their way out of the ground, like out of their little hole in the sand. And it's just magical to see that in person and up close. And sometimes you're just there counting them. I think the very last day that I was digging, there was someone had found one that was like a nest that was hatching and there was over 40 of them, I think, that we were able to try and, like, bring into the water. Yeah. Which is amazing. So you're, like, renegade archaeologist slash wildlife uh, <laughs> conservationist. I don't want to put myself in the conservation area, but it was nice to, like, you know, shoo the birds away while we're trying to get as many of the, the little turtles into the water. But um, that's always fun. But the other, like, if you're, if you're digging, the, the, the experience is that you kind of really remember there, just a lot of the 
the inside jokes that happen and the the camaraderie. So we had this we had this rubber chicken. I don't know. That will always remind me for some reason. We had this rubber chicken. You squeeze it. You know, it makes noise and yeah, it's so I that know, way I you're know not the exact noise. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, but you. We used it when we were taking points and things, to, so you don't have to yell, and sometimes you can't always hear the person because of the water and the wind. So it was, you know, you squeak the chicken. But it was never really used for that purpose. <laughs> it was just used to terrorize and, and make us jump a lot of the time. So that's just a fun little memory. That so somebody, like, your day, somebody sneaks up behind you with the chicken. Yeah. And you're just, like, casually just all, and you're like, you just jump. And... Um, <laughs> I think that's, you know, you have to have that sort of lightheartedness on site because everyone's in such extreme conditions and you are physically tired. You can be emotionally tired because you're with these people 24-7 and the weather is always a thing. You're, you're, you're getting dirty and it's stressful and you need those moments of levity to just to have fun and so how it. long are you out there you you get you wake up at six something you get out to the site maybe seven and, and you're out there what till you run out of daylight no no we we kind of go until it's around one ish sometimes two like when it gets to be like too warm also mm -hmm. just for lunch because we do have a we have a break in the a few breaks in the morning one for you know snack and and proper like breakfast and things and so there's always food there for us to kind of replenish and then we go back for lunch which is you know about an hour sometimes it, it does depend on what needs to be done for the rest of the day so sometimes we have you know two hours sometimes we have two and a half hours off to just kind of you know breathe relax sit down get out of from the sun eat a lot of food and then the afternoon we either would go back to site for a few hours before the sun would start to set to do some more work, or we would do some experimental archaeology in the back, or we would do some post-excavation because obviously once you get all the stuff out of the ground, you need to analyze it, you need to sort it, you need to clean it, you need to make sure like what you picked up is actually an artifact and not a just a, just a rock that you thought was cool. Yeah, that's always my problem with artifacts. <laughs> yeah. End up being rocks that look cool. Hey, tell us about exper experimental archaeology. What the heck is that? So experimental archaeology, it's trying to, it's using what we have from the archaeological record and then trying to recreate it today, but using the same methods and everything from, from the past. So actually reconstructing artifacts. Yes, and sort of different practices to see how these things were made and to kind of get a better understanding from the practical side of things. So the, the week before I showed up, they made mud brick because that was a major building material for thousands of years. People still use mud brick to, to build houses and everything mm -hmm. nowadays. So they did the old school methods. And when I was there, we did copper smelting. So we made this, there was this, you know, mud kiln essentially that was made and we got the copper ore and we got charcoal and, you know, we did, we had a little help with, for, with some, some technology, but 
you really just kind of get into the the old methods of doing it. So making it really hot inside, like you know the, the flames are just going, and you're putting in charcoal, 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 and then you're putting on the layer of the copper ore, and you're getting that really hot, and you're doing like layers in between of charcoal and copper ore and charcoal and copper ore as that goes up, and then eventually it gets so hot in the bottom that when you break open the kiln at the bottom, you know the copper kind of like comes out. And then from there you, you know, all the, you do all the processes essentially that create a copper piece. And then you realize just how much work goes into getting a very small amount of copper to make a fish hook or to make, you know, like a little rod. And you have a better appreciation for the development of technology. Yeah, so you get perspective with experimental archaeology. It helps you get a clearer picture. For sure. And then you can also kind of say, okay, well, I you, sometimes it's completely perspective changing too with you think something's made one way, but then you try to make it in the way that you speculate it and it just doesn't work at all. And so then you can have to, you have to learn on the spot. What about shipwrecks? I know you're digging up a harbor. So has, have they done marine archaeology in the area as well? There has not been any done. It would be, I think it'd be very difficult to find anything because wood does not last very well in environments that are either acidic or sort of that change environment that change climate very often so if it's wet then dry then wet then dry like on a beach it mm -hmm. uh dis it disintegrates it's organic organics don't last as long as for example metals and wood and pottery not sorry right. me metals and not wood but metals pottery and stone interesting so uh, let's talk about Oman Street. Uh, I'm sure you have a little time while you're in the area to explore things that are off the site. Anything memorable stick out to you that was a surprise? Other than the airport? <laughs> um, yeah, we did. I did some exploring. So we had a, a weekend trip to the Wadi Shab, which is a beautiful. I guess it's, you can kind of call it a canyon, but it's more of a and like an ephemeral water course, essentially. Interesting. Beautiful. So. When you think of Oman, a lot of people think of, you know, like just desert and kind of just very monotone colors. But when you see green and when you see blue and water, especially anything like that, Oman, it's just so saturated and it's absolutely stunning. So Wadi Shab is one of the most well-known wadis in Oman. And when you get there, you have to take a boat from the, I guess, the visitor center. Not really. It's just the parking lot in a little cafe um take a boat across this little body of water it's like literally two minutes it's not far and then you get off and you start hiking now with a wadi there is water but it's not constant there's usually little pools and bits and places where you have to swim and you can't touch the bottom but then there's other areas where you have to you get to walk through or you have to climb over rocks to get to the next section mm -hmm. so we did a whole climb through it and when you get to a point where you can't walk any further, you have to swim. So you have to get in, you know, get out of your clothes and into a bathing suit and just go for it. And we found, you know, you're swimming, you're going through it. There's parts where you can kind of climb up and jump off cliffs into the water. And just the water is so blue and such a, 
cool place because you're, you know, there's these pans on either side of you and you just feel, you feel small, but in a really cool way. And then there's this hidden waterfall. If you go under this, I remember there was this one area, kind of have to squeeze through and the water had sort of eroded it away. And it just, it was just enough space for you to have your head out of the water. And if any higher, you would get stuck in the rock. <laughs> So you're kind of going through it and you come into this open cave and there's this hidden waterfall. It's just Wow. And is this something that like anybody that, that wants to go there, they can just hop on a little boat and go see? Anybody can do it, yeah. There was there was actually it was quite busy the day we went. Right. So I wanna to talk to you a little about tourism in Oman as you come down and of course all of our data is really pre-pandemic. I've got no idea what happened there, uh, you know, after yeah. spring of 2020, but it seemed like to me from a travel writing perspective, Oman was sort of hitting that, that turning point almost where Vietnam was 15 or 20 years ago uh, as, as a destination that might not have been the first place to come to mind, but was starting to gain immense popularity. Um, what do you think about that? I definitely agree. It, it seemed, you know, three years ago, if you asked me to point out Oman on a map, I would have asked you if that was a country. Mm. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, when people hear it, they don't really think too much about it. And I had, I had noticed that when I was there, like what I had heard before too, it's kind of been called what the, the last bastion of, of, um, Arabia, like of un unspoiled Arabia, quote unquote, whoever said mm -hmm. that, but, um, yeah, whoever it, said that just ruined it for everyone. <laughs> I know. Um, but I remember reading that and thinking like, what's the difference? And yeah, cause everyone goes to the UAE, right. And it's, it's right next door to it. And you think mm -hmm. of that kind of view of Arabia and kind of that area, but Oman, it was sort of this under the radar travel location where people would go and they'd always come back with very positive reviews and stuff but I think because it doesn't have a railway system and it's not quite as developed in the sense of being able to get around ease of access for tourism it wasn't on everyone's list and it wasn't getting the attention it deserved and over the last two or three years I've been noticing that more and more people have been going and it's been on my, you know, for example, like on my social medias a lot more. And you're starting to see more travel YouTubers start posting videos there. And when I was yeah. there, you can kind of feel that vibe. You know, you can feel like there's something, like it's about to boom. And you realize that people are going to, are missing out, but they're slowly starting to catch on. Right. I, I hope they're able to retain that, some authenticity too, because if we talk to, uh, we had an influencer guest on a few months ago who was in Turkey and it just seemed like it was really hard for her to find authentic experiences because everything was being catered to social media. Yeah, that's happening so much everywhere and you know, you're seeing what the special in Instagram museums just popping up and everything. It's just it's not authentic anymore. Everyone does it for the pictures and for the gram. But with Oman, it's still such a a raw place and I really hope it gets to keep that you know there's the fancy airport but there's still no big skyscrapers right. or big monuments like in Dubai 
uh, there is a big mall. I was impressed with the mall. <laughs> but, you know, you can still go and, especially in Muscat, you can go to the Mutrasuk, which is the old part of the town where the, the fishing harbor is and where all the trading stuff used to happen. And you go through the souk and you still feel that vibe of, you know, it's still very local and it's Omanis that are there. But you can still kind of wander around and and no one's no one's bothering you either. No one's kind of like, you know, hassling you or kind of chasing you down to go into their shop. You can just kind of do whatever you want and kind of experience it for what it really is. So it doesn't feel touristy at all. Oh, man, that does sound like paradise. So as this trip sort of winds down and you find yourself back in the UK, uh, how does your experience in Oman impact what you want to do going forward in life? Well, oh boy. The dig in Oman was something that was very special for me, especially at the time, because I had, my grandfather had passed about a month before I, le I arrived. And oh, wow. he was most important person in my life and such an amazing figure very influential. So it was really hard for me to try and like, well, you know, what's my life without this person? And I maybe you're going through a similar thing at the moment. Yeah, and, it is. And, and I'm so sorry to hear about that as well. Yeah, it's so I, 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 I sympathize with you with that. And so for me doing to do that, usually for me, especially with grief, when I'm dealing with grief, I travel. Yeah, I like book a <laughs> flight somewhere. Right. Which, yeah, Same. So, <laughs> yeah. So this was, you know, a good, I guess, convenient timing, but um, it was such a way for me to get back into archaeology. And I, I had done a, I had graduated from my first master's just about a, 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 I guess, the year before in 2019. And I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do, what my next steps were. I knew the next step was to go further into archaeology, further with the YouTube and the science communication and filming and they gave me the opportunity with the time of Magan field school to film for them and I was able to do both of my passions at the same time so I was able to film on site I was able to dig I was able to just do everything that I wanted to do and it really helped cement kind of what the year of 2020 would bring for me which was you know this is what I want to be doing it was a really amazing experience to be like there needs to be more of this in my life where I can go to these places that are sort of off the beaten path and mm -hmm. bring their stories to the public, but not in a, not in a touristy way, not in a travel, you know, influencer type way, but in a real authentic way that shows the history and the, the, the cultural heritage that needs to be preserved and just really wanting me to get back into that area of just, you know, digging up history and being part of, of the story. We're talking to Raven Todd De Silva. She's on Instagram at dig it with Raven. Um, I find that inspiring because as I grow older, I, I start to move away from the influencer type places, uh, those, those don't really inspire me anymore. They almost make me, 
angry for some reason. And so I move away from like the pretty girl in a hat at sunset, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I want to find the real stories and the real stuff that's out there in places you've never heard of. And, you know, maybe that involves trying to do some of the opposite of what Bourdain did. Um, he was, he was such a, a talent, but also there was this Bourdain effect and everywhere he went, just look at Vietnam, uh, yeah. every restaurant, everything is, is exploded. And I feel like maybe the future of travel journalism is going to places and not really giving away all of the secrets. That's true. I do. I do understand that. And it, it is something that you have to be wary of, especially if you're trying to promote places and travel you do want to keep that authenticity is such a weird word to say though, because pe places are always changing and they're always evolving and, you know, mm -hmm. they're living, breathing entities, these communities, these areas. And so they will change over time. But I understand what you mean when you saying like you're, you want to move away from the influencer areas because every time, you know, you see the same pictures of the same places on every single person's feed. And they're yeah. all doing the same poses. And then when you get there, they obviously look different because everyone around you is posing. And there's like and a line sometimes yes. of people to do this. It's, it's really great. And I think as a microcosm of that, this is a total detour. Um, but as a microcosm of that, I live in Memphis in Tennessee. And this is a, a historic, gritty city that's forever held on to its identity of... Uh, uh, soul music and rock and roll and like what what it was in the late mid and late 1900s by accident because we were broke as hell and we couldn't build anything new for 50 60 years and two hours away is nashville which is the exact opposite uh, they have a rich music history with, with country um, other things but over the last 20 years, they've demolished most of their history and built new things. So there's this dividing line of like, what is authentic? Because old Nashville is gone, so is the new thing that's mostly cookie cutter, is that their new authentic? And it, are yeah. you more authentic for coming to Memphis because it's older or, I mean, where is the line, right? That's it, it sounds like you have like a, a hipster problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, major. Well, it's it's uh, a lot of like investors from New York and California and stuff are are coming in and buying up whole blocks of the city um, here. And within the next decade, Memphis will become a lot more like Nashville. Yes, and, and it's it's just how like the world is going, especially at certain areas and things just yeah. get demolished all the time. But, but of course, you know, that's been happening for thousands of years as well. Yeah, right? it's nothing new. Like nothing walk around new. Rome. Rome is built on top of Rome, which is built on top of Rome, right? <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, there, 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 you, you, you can always advocate for the protection of historic buildings, but there will be some progress that has to be made. And as an archaeologist, or even just as a, and especially as an art conservator, you know, I see an old building, I want to keep it at all costs, you know, yeah. I, I, but I understand that that's not how it works because sometimes when you halt a building from being altered or renovated, then you kind of change the meaning of the building 
that it used to have in the community. Yeah, exactly. That's totally true. Yeah. Um, as we wind down here, I want to talk to you uh, about becoming an archaeologist. Um, I tried and failed to do that when I was like 19. Um, mm -hmm. Probably just lack of focus and dedication, but how does somebody listening to this show, how do they start that process? Well, there's there's sort of not really quite a cookie cutter way to get into it. Um, there's the generic way, well, not a generic way, but like the the way that you kind of do it right away is, you know, you go and you study archaeology at university with your undergraduate degree. That's, you know, but then of course to become an archaeologist, a fully fledged one that's kind of like certified, it's very dependent on the country you're in. But for example, in the States, I know you need to pretty much have a master's. You right. need to get to that level in order to become, you know, even just a, just the, to become more of like a field archaeologist and do the digs, do cultural resource management and do other things in that sort of field. Um, it does help to get a master's in archaeology. If you want to teach or anything, or if you want to be able to run your own site and do your own research projects, that's when you need to get a doctorate. So those are the, that's the, the school way. And yes, school is important. You always have to definitely have some sort of background in education with archaeology. But a very large factor is field work, is experience. So I'm in the UK at the moment. And to become an archaeologist in the UK, you could you you only have to have a bachelor's to do field uh, to do cultural resource management or commercial archaeology, and from there you just have to start getting experience because you're especially if you're going to be in the field, no amount of book learning will ever prepare you for laying out a trench for understanding. You can understand stratigraphy, which is the dating of of the different layers as they build up throughout time of the soil, but you're never going to actually understand or be able to see the differences in the soil layers until you're in the soil, until you're, right. experiencing, yeah. until you're looking at it being like, but it's all brown. And then someone next to you goes, oh, no, look, there's like five or six different layers here. And you're looking at them like they're crazy because it's all just brown. Right. <laughs> and they're like, oh, but this one's a little bit redder. And this one's more yellow. And this one's greener. I'm like, wow, since when is brown green? And so... <laughs> You know, you really have to get, get your hands dirty, to say the you least. You need, like, that expertise. Um, I would just take out one of those, like, Pantone laser things that sh that tells you, like, the exact <laughs> Pantone color of something. Boom. I think like, we need one hack. of those. Oh, well, we need that. Oh we God. have these things called Munsell books, Munsell, Munsell color charts. And they are, they're from the, the Pantone colors, but they're all, like, shades of brown and gray and yellow. And you're putting yeah. it up. You know, little like paint chips almost. You're putting it up against the soil, trying to figure out, hmm, is this one more R2 or like? Oh, N7? yeah, no, no, you need the laser gun <laughs> thing because it'll tell you like cool gray 10 versus cool gray 8 or something like that. Like it knows somehow. Wow. Oh, man. That's was Archaeology is massively underfunded. Um, so one oh, day, hopefully. Well, I'll just mail one to that site and like randomly get one courtesy of the Get Lost podcast. That would be amazing. Um, or like if we can create an app, an app would be great. Yeah, I don't, it probably exists. There's probably a Pantone app that's like a million dollars because everything they do is very expensive. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, so uh, two questions for you. One, before you came on the show, were you aware that your name is our mascot? 
I was not. Not until I, uh, I Googled it. I went, oh, look, it's me. Yeah. It's you with headphones. Um, so we'll have to send you some merch, obviously. Please, uh, please. I will wear it proudly. Uh, second thing is, uh, final thoughts on Oman as, as a country. Beautiful country. Beautiful people. Could have had better food. <laughs> um, especially if you're a vegetarian. I would say just good luck. A lot of chicken and rice. <laughs> Just chicken. I am a vegetarian. Oh yeah, that would be hard then, because I would just take yeah. a bottle of sriracha and just bam, I'm ready. Yeah. Well, see, there you go. Um, but I, you know, I didn't have a problem eating. It was just more. Um, you have to be aware of. I was. I'm that person where it's like, okay, there's chicken in my stew. I'm gonna just take out the chicken. Yeah. It's fine. When I'm traveling, you know, that's just the, the, you know, what you have to do. Um, but it's absolutely such a stunning place. It's completely unexpected, and I will say, as a woman traveling in the Middle East, it was such a safe and just kind of calm experience, whereas normally sometimes you can feel maybe that you always have to be on guard or you have to, you know, you don't feel, as someone coming from a different country, you don't feel that culture shock as much. I would say, like, yes, you have to cover up and be respectful of the traditions in that country. But I didn't feel like, like, I, I felt very safe the entire time I was there. And I felt very welcome. And I could just kind of be a little bit more, I guess, fear with what I wanted to do and say. I love in comparison to, hear that. to other countries. Yeah. I, I love to hear that. As much as we do like stories about pirate raids and things of that nature, uh, sometimes it's nice just to know where you can go and, and have a, a wonderful experience. So, uh, guys, <laughs> I, I want you to check out Raven's YouTube channel and her Instagram, Dig It with Raven. Um, we're going to link to her, obviously, on our own channels. Uh, and, Raven, thank you so, so much for kicking off season three with us. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Give us a follow on Instagram at Get Lost Podcasts. Listen to the show at getlostpod.com.